everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Really uh, looking forward to talking to my old friend and colleague, uh, Dan Pfeiffer. Uh, Dan's got a new book out called Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America Democracy Again. It's really a great read. A lot of good thoughts about the upcoming election, but a lot of time spent talking about what we need to do on a more medium-term basis uh, and some really provocative ideas around structural reform and the fact that progressives really need to um, be a little bit more aggressive about using the power that we hope to accumulate um, if we win back the presidency and the Senate. Um, So Dan has written, I think, a really important book. I think all of you will uh, learn something from it, may trigger ideas of your own, and also clearly makes um, the point that while we need our elected officials and, and leaders to do more, to swing for the fences a little bit more aggressively, Ultimately, that won't happen if we don't all hold them accountable and provide them motivation and cover uh, for some of the tough things they need to do. So uh, this book, I think, is a a critical read for anybody, not just who's concerned about the next election, uh, but who's concerned about the state of our democracy and if there's anything we can do about it. Uh, And I think Dan gives us optimism that there's a lot we can do if we have the courage and gumption to try. So I'm really excited to talk to my old friend, Dan Pfeiffer. So excited to be talking to my old friend and colleague, Dan Pfeiffer, who's got a really awesome new book out, Um, his second book. This one's called Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America Democracy Again. Uh, Dan, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. It's good to be here. So listen, there's so much in your book, uh, I think, observations and lessons that will help us in this next election, a lot of great thoughts about what we need to do beyond that. But kind of if, if – what's your goal when someone, you know, purchases this book and spends a little time with it? What, what do you hope they take away from it? I want them to recognize that the only path to sustainable progressive power in this country is for the Democrats to make fixing our democracy issue number one. We have spent the entire time of this election debating what health care plan we're going to do. Are we going to do Medicare for all or public option or something else? And we have to understand is that the structures of our – politics, both from what the way the founders set it up and then the ways Mitch McConnell, the Koch brothers and others have exploited them, make American politics rigged, rigged against progressive power. So instead of talking about what we should do, which is important, we should talk about how we're going to get it done. Because absent ta- taking on some of the reforms I lay out in this book, we are we are not going to pass Medicare for all. We're not going to pass Medicare for some. We're not going to pass Medicare for one more person in America. So I want people to understand that Trump is a symptom of a broken democracy, not the cause of it. So I want to get to some of your reform ideas in a minute, but I think one of the barriers people have is they're just despondent, right? Which is that, you know, McConnell's not going to change, Fox isn't going to change, Sinclair's not going to change. So kind of what do you say to somebody who says, I agree with you, Dan, filibuster the Electoral College, we have to do a lot more work in non-presidential years, all the things you, I think, capture so well. But I'm not sure, any, you know, any of it will really get it done. What do you, what do you say to people who are a little bit depressed and despondent? Well, I think it's that's the exact point. Is there is going to be no epiphany if and when Trump leaves? Mitch McConnell is not going to come around. Lindsey Graham's not going to go back to being a John McCain-esque uh, cooperator and compromiser. That the that we have to be the authors of our own destiny here as Democrats. We have to we have to recognize the fact that the majority of Americans agree with us. They are just being blocked 
explicitly or implicitly from being part of the political process. And if we can take the important steps to bring them into the process, then we will have a future that looks much more like the politics of Barack Obama than Donald Trump. So I'm curious, in some of your ideas that you have in here, reforms, changes in practice for the party, which are the ones that you think will be, assuming we've got the the courage and the moxie, the easiest to get done, let's say, over the next four years? Well, I think certainly, I mean, an important part of this is we have to win the White House and we have to win the Senate. Like, that is a fundamental task. And if we have those things, we can get rid of the filibuster on day one. And once in the second we finish the filibuster, we should add D.C. as a state, which would add two uh, progressive senators uh, into the mix, which would help rebalance the beginning, at least, of rebalancing the Senate from the <clears throat> from the very pro-conservative rural state bias it has. The good news is a lot of the stuff that I talk about in terms of dealing with gerrymandering, of making voting easier, is already happening in the states where Democrats took over in 2018, automatic voter registration, expanding early vote. And so there's a roadmap there, and we're already starting to make progress. But there are some things that if we are just willing to do what seems tough but are actually very, very like feasible, because you if you have 50 votes in the Senate and a president to sign it, you can get it done. Like you, We could add two Supreme Court justices on day two of a Democratic presidency if we were willing to do that. And I think it's important that Democrats understand how important that is, because if we do not do those things, I there was going to continue to be conservatives, whether we have the White House, the Senate, or anything else, conservatives will continue to dictate the policy agenda in America. And that's not something we can afford in any way, shape, or form, but particularly in a world where every day that we're not doing something about climate change is a day we're never going to get back. So I think you write about this really um, powerfully in the book that, you know, one of the challenges for progressives and and, and, and Democrats is we don't play as um, nasty as they do, right? We we are a little bit too sensitive to criticism. So some of the things you're talking about, you know, D.C. estate, um, getting rid of the filibuster, Supreme additional Supreme Court justices, you know, I think traditionally Democrats have shied away from that kind of thing because they feel like it's too bold, they're going to get too criticized. And so what... What's going to change? Because at the end of the day, I think the you know, point in your book is every person has a role to play to push elected officials and push leaders. But ultimately, it's going to ha- we're going to have to have enough leaders in Washington willing to swing for the fences here. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right that I think a lot about D.C. statehood, right? Like we had the capacity, even without getting rid of the filibuster in 2009, to make D.C. a state. It was a position that Barack Obama supported in the campaign. It was something that everyone who was looking at the question honestly thought was the right thing to do, and no one seriously thought about doing it. And I think in part because Democrats have a reticence about political power. We think of it as a means to an end to get some to get a policy done, right? It, like the, our political power is like capital be, to be spent down. And Republicans think very differently about political power. I think they do it in a very cynical way, but they understand that doing things that give you political power allow you to pursue more of your goals. And so there is a mentality shift that has to come to Democrats. I do think that that is going to come from the, I hope we elect a president who thinks aggressively about the importance of democratic reform, but it is going to come from the grassroots. You're seeing this more and more from younger activists, groups like Indivisible, for instance, who are pushing Democrats on this. And so we're going to have to try, if Democrats on their, elected Democrats on their own are not going to get there, it's going to be up to the grassroots to move them to it, to be tougher about these things. Like, I am in no way advocating 
that we do the sorts of things that McConnell and Trump are doing. All I'm asking us to do are do the things that we think are the right things to do anyway, but are they also they also happen to make it more likely for Democrats to be able to get get elected and pass the policies that we care about. Voter expansion, adding DC to state. These are things we think are right, but we shy away from them because we we're either we're just like nervous about it. And we're afraid Fox is going to criticize us. And if there's one lesson of the Trump era: we're going to get criticized no matter what we do. So we might as well do the big, bold, aggressive thing that makes it more likely to give universal health care to people, raise the minimum wage, or save the planet. Yeah, I mean, you you've talked about this a lot through your career. You you talk you wrote about this in your first book, and and you write about it in Untrumping America, just the power of their media ecosystem. And it does strike me that, you know, they have their alternative reality, right? Sort of Trump's happy place. Fox and Claire, Breitbart, you know, all the... It seems like every day, by the way, there's a new conservative online news outlet being started in a battleground state. We'll come back to that. And Democrats, I know Trump think, you know, he says the entire, you know, media is is anti-him, pro-left. We know differently. I think Democrats don't have that, like, peanut gallery that thinks everything they do is great. And so I think that makes them a little bit more concerned. You mentioned criticism from Fox, but it could be criticism from MSNBC hosts or from the New York Times. And I guess that's that's a big reorientation, I think, for maybe less grassroots activists, but leaders and elected officials is not to care so much about that. Um, I'm just curious because, you know, you've been in these discussions where you where you evaluate risk and benefit. And it seems like you're just saying we need to put all of our chips on the stuff that actually has a chance here, even though, you know, not everyone's going to like it, even though we're going to get criticized by some, even friends, right? Right. I think that we're a lot of the ideas in this book, particularly the one about expanding the Supreme Court, are ripe for criticism from a lot of our friends and from media types who are are sympathetic with us on a whole host of other issues. And we have to just blow past that because we have to focus on what matters. And I just I have come to such the conclusion over the last three years that that the system that our politics is not democratic enough small d, right? The way things are set up with the Senate, the Electoral College, voter suppression in the states, gerrymandering, all of those things are part of a Republican a conservative strategy, Mitch McConnell, the Koch brothers, et cetera, that make it so that even after the overall American population becomes more progressive, more diverse, younger, a shrinking conservative, aging white minority can continue to govern American politics. And we, if we don't take that idea on, we have to, then we're just going to be playing just moving the, the deck chairs around the Titanic for a long time. Like, yeah, we could win some elections. Yeah, we could even pass a bill here or two. But the things we really care about are not going to get done and not get done in a sustainable way. And that requires us to reorient our thinking as Democrats. And my hope in this book is to begin that process and build begin a process for my end and build on the work others have done to try to reorient that shift towards understanding the structural problems the Democratic Party has and it really, I think, is about like Trump almost confused. Like in some ways, Trump wakes our, wakes us up to this because what he's been able to get away with. But in other ways, he confuses us because he seems like this once in a gazillion year phenomenon that like he'll be gone one day, things will go back to normal. But that's not the case. He's actually the logical end of something that's been building for a long time and is destined to get worse because of where the incentives are for conservative politicians to go forward. So, I mean, it seems like you've got some urgent steps here you're recommending, um, but, you know, to, to kind of mitigate where we are, particularly in the Senate, where because we're not competitive in a lot of states, 
I mean, it seems like right now our ceiling probably is 52. Sadly, it doesn't get higher than that. How much of this in the medium to long term is about, even if Democrats are aggressive with some of your ideas and reforms in this book, um, us being more competitive in more places electorally? Oh, I think we have to be, and we have to do the hard work of building political power in red states. And that's going to take time. Like the adding DC as a state and fixing the filibuster will solve, you know, is a, gives us potential to get some things done in the short term. But in the long term, we have to, we have to build organization. We have to build infrastructure all across the country. And we have to finally do the 50 state strategy that we've been talking about for a long time. And I think, and I have an entire chapter in the book here about some things we could do to change how the Democratic Party is run and funded oriented to make that more possible and more likely. But we, like there is a, there are a set of, set of short-term situations here and a series of, a, a lot of long-term work that is necessary to sort of, to build the party out and build progressivism out in the country. So you've got a unique vantage point because you toiled in the vineyards in South Dakota and Indiana, amongst other states, um, despite us winning Indiana in 08, still kind of a hard red state. So do you think it's possible for us in the next decade in places like that to become significantly more competitive? I think like whether we can move it in a decade into like a battleground state like uh, Michigan or Pennsylvania, I think could be quite challenging. I think, but it'd be, we don't, we don't know the answer to that. Like we sh what we should start with is running candidates all up and down the ballot from school board to state legislature to governor. Because every one of those campaigns, if we, or if there's, I mean, you know this better than anyone else, if you organize around it and register voters around it, you're going to make the next one easier, right? So we haven't even done the basic work yet to find out. I mean, look, the, like, polarization is a real thing in this country. It is, um, it, it makes it very hard, you know, to, in particularly these white rural states for Democrats to succeed, but we haven't tried either. And I think there does need to be some humility to the you know, that we should take from this because, you know, it was 16 years ago, right after the 04 election, when the belief in all of Washington and all of politics was that we were on the cusp of a permanent Republican majority, right? That after Bush had won in 04, there was the, uh, there was a book written called The Emerging Republican Majority. It was about how Rove and Ken Melman were going to build this based on Christian conservatives and Latino voters uh, in making inroads in the African-American community, Bush was going to build this Republican majority. Two years later, they lost the House and the Senate. Two years after that, Barack Obama was elected in a huge margin. Right until about the middle of October 2016, everyone thought that we were on this inexorable demographic path where we were gonna, Republicans could still win statewide and at the congressional level, but Democrats had a national presidential majority that was only going to get better over time because we had locked in more than enough votes to be over 270. We lose Electoral College a few weeks later. And so I, th I think you don't know how politics is going to shift, but if you don't do the work now to build the infrastructure to be able to take advantage of those shifts, then it's going to happen without any sort of benefit to the party. Right. Yeah, you have, I mean, some just some great, um, I think, advice and observations for grassroots activists and the role they can play both, you know, between now and November and then the important battles after that. I'm curious. So, you know, part of that is, you mentioned this earlier in our discussion, like grassroots activists are going to be the reason if we do something like D.C. statehood or get rid of the filibuster or the Supreme Court is they're going to push and push and push. But it seems like for us to be competitive in more places, um, you know, more often electorally, you know, we are going to have to be more comfortable than, you know, the Twitter 
uh, verse allows us to be with, you know, centrist and, and even, you know, center-right Democrats. So how do you think about that, which is we want to push the accelerator as much as we can on aggressive structural changes that allow us to accomplish our goals. But to grow the party, it means we have to be and you know what you and I have talked a lot about this, I and mean, I think one of the there are a lot of reasons we had such good elections in six and eight, Obama won re-election in twelve. Part of it was the Republican primary base was more disconnected from the center of the electorate than the Democratic primary base. I think it's fair to say right now both uh, primary bases are disconnected from the center of the electorate, um, more certainly more than I would like on the Democratic side. So how do you square those two things? Well, I mean, you raise a very important and a concern that keeps me up at night as well, which is the <clears throat> sort of the incentives that drive politics in the Twitter age are ones that push against broadening the tent, making a bigger tent, inviting new people in. And that that is going to require both an open mind from activists and leaders to push for it, right? Which is we just like, yes, does Joe Manchin annoy the living shit out of me all the time? Yes, he does. Is he, am I very glad that we have, particularly when you vote for things like defeating the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, are we glad I have Joe Manchin in the Senate? Absolutely. And so we have to figure out how we can be, like we want to be a progressive populist party, but we want to welcome in people who are turned off by the nativism and plutocracy of the Republican Party, who may be more conservative than us on some set of other issues. And I think that that is something that's going to have to happen at the bottom, at the top, but it is, we can't. We just have, we have to recognize the that if we want to have a democratic majority, you're going to need people as liberal as AOC and as conservative as Ben McAdams in Utah, right? And and I think the to the credit of people like Pelosi, they fully understand that and have pushed for it. And you know, look, if you're a Democrat in Utah and you don't like Ben McAdams and you want to run someone in the primary against him because he wasn't as progressive as you thought. That's a decision that happens at the local level. But I'd much rather have someone who is going to vote for a Democrat to be Speaker of the House than Kevin McCarthy. And these are all hard, super complicated questions. Right. So, um, you know, you capture in the book just the the structural advantages the Republicans have with, um, you know, Fox, Inc. Um, And, you know, I I think most people don't have an understanding, you do, of how innovative um, they're online. I mean, I saw a report last week, there's like 12 or 14 new, newish conservative publications in Michigan alone to create content. So you have some really good, both observations and ideas in the book. Um, you know, we, we need to always be on some really good ideas about your imaginary super PAC. Um, but, but what is it going to take for, and when I say us, it's complicated because there is no party anymore, the way we traditionally think about it. There's no, you know, smoke-filled room. So what is it going to require for us, and it's not going to happen overnight, to get to the point from like a content standpoint, we are, you know, anywhere close to equal with the right? It's really going to, I mean, this is really hard because it's going to take time and it's going to take money, two things that does not feel like we have a lot of. But we need to build up a progressive media infrastructure in this country. And that is not to say that we should have a liberal fox. That is not what I'm arguing for. We have to recognize that the way, and you know this better than anyone else, but the way people get information now is so driven by social media. And you need more inputs to put content into that system in order for it to reach people. And right now we are being absolutely outgunned by Fox, 
by Breitbart, but by a thousand other outlets you've never heard of who are getting levels of engagement that would make the New York Times excited on stories. And so we really need investment. I talk in the book about how we still have in, within the broader democratic or progressive liberal world. I don't even know what you're describing because you point out there's no establishment. There's no meeting where people get together and make these decisions. But we still love the old world of media, right? We like we subscribe to the New York Times and the Washington Post, two great publications as a sign of resistance against Trump. We we <clears throat> that we do our we still think of the primary way in which you communicate people by talking to the press and having the press talk to them. And we need a mentality shift there, both in terms of how campaigns communicate. And I think some of them, the ones running this primary, have already begun taking very important steps to that, but also in how like how we invest, right? We have very um, generous people in the Democratic Party who are funding all kinds of very important technology, right? Like apps to help us organize and you know ways in which to you know improve our data and our infrastructure. All this stuff is incredibly important. But we also need to be investing in political in progressive media. And you know, you sort of see it that we're some of the biggest democratic donors, when they invest in media, what they do is they buy an old media company and try to rehab. And that is like we need people, we don't want propaganda, we don't want um, you know, like we don't want dishonesty or fiction instead of fact, but we do need sort of as you though you said earlier, we need a choir, right, who will who will sing the progressive song and if progressive poli- democratic politicians we will also hold their feet to the fire if they go out of the, you know, if they sort of step out of, not step out of line, but are, but it's just, I think it's so important that we build up the structure that we have people pushing progressive content into the social media ecosystem, Facebook in particular, so that more people will see our message because we are getting drowned out in the conversation in this country politically because of the incentives in a, Social media, digital ad world lean towards Trump. He drives enga- engagement, drives how many people see things. Trump drives engagement. In- engagement drives ad revenue. Trump drives engagement. So therefore, the things that are talked about are Trump's things. And so we need some we need some vehicles to be able to get the democratic message out. It is why crooked media exists, but there need to be a thousand um, a thousand versions like that all across the board, state, local, city, et cetera. No, I think it is interesting. I think a lot of times progressives and donors want to, and I understand it, it'd be easier if there was one answer. I think the lesson from the right is there isn't one answer. <laughs> um, it's it's a thousand different publications, maybe singing the same hymn, to your point, uh, but in slightly different ways. So I want to dig into this a little bit more, because you were a communications professional at the highest level possible, certainly in politics. And when we'd think not too long about, about you have a new health care plan or a new jobs plan, right? I mean, I still think it's important to think about what the plan is. I hope that hasn't changed, right? But it's like, what's the speech you're going to give? And are you going to leak it to somebody? And then what's the interviews you're going to give? It seems to me that that model is completely broken. Like, you need to be thinking, what's my Instagram and Facebook play? And everything falls in that. Trump, I think, you know, he himself utilizes Twitter, but he does. And I think he should himself be utilizing these other platforms more. But, you know, that he gets that, right? He doesn't get bollocked up on traditional rollout plans. It's like brute force communication. Do you agree? Is that kind of where we are, which is if you've got anything of value to say, whether it's a contrast with your opponent, it's a new policy idea, it's a new piece of news, you have to be thinking, what's my Facebook and Instagram play and everything else is secondary to that? Yeah, I think it's even, I think that's exactly right. But it's also, I take a step further back from that, which is, as you point out, I was the White House communications director. I was being communications director on presidential campaigns, Senate offices, Senate campaigns. 
And in all of those roles, I would spend 70 to 90% of my time thinking about what's the press strategy, right? As you say, what's the interview we do? What time do we, does Barack Obama give the speech so we can make the local news in Wisconsin? You know, which reporters are we going to bring in for Obama to spin or for us to spin? All of those things, all about press. And even, even though the world has changed a thousand times over since I was White House Communications Director, that is still how a lot of people think. And it's in part because we're still abiding by the old structures that have been around. I tell a story in the book about how I was the communications director on the president on the transition uh, committee where we're planning out the staffing of the government. And someone, when you show up on first day at the transition, someone brings you a binder that, uh, that has all the budgets and staffing structures of the last many White Houses. And I got the one for the communications and press offices. And the and I was shocked when I looked and saw that the I, the one I the binder I had went back to Carter. And Carter's communications and press operation was not that different from George W. Bush's. And it ended up being not that different than the one we started with because of resources and time. And even though the, the internet had not been invented, right, by the time when those things were created, and we still abide by that structure of a communications director. And I think we have to change our mentality from communications to content. Everything is a piece of content. And it is up to a campaign, like I, I recommend a position like a chief content officer, which is a holistic position where you you think about how are we going to persuade our target universe of people, right? In a presidential campaign, that's, as you would tell everyone, that's the voters that get you to your win number in enough states that add up to 270. That's your job. Your job is not to get good press coverage, not to get lots of press coverage, it's not to get a cool interview. Your job is to persuade voters. And you have a whole set of tools at your disposal. You have... Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you have the organic social stuff the campaign and the candidate can do. You have uh, digital videos and email. You have ads, digital ads, and you have the media because a New York Times story is a piece of content, right? If it's about your healthcare plan or why it's good or why your opponent's healthcare plan is bad, that's a piece of content. And it's your job to ensure that content is created, but then also making sure that content gets in front of the voters that you need it to see, right? And that can be through social. It can be through digital ads. It's targeted at specific groups of people or a specific person. And it can also be through mobilizing your online supporters to share that content with the people in their network. And like you need to bring that holistic set of strategies to it. Because if you're, if, as long as communications primarily means press, we are going to lose because the, the media just doesn't have, individual media outlets do not have the reach to influence people at scale anymore. And if we depend on that, we're not going to succeed. And the Republicans understand that because they have a 40-year history of deciding they hate the media. And so they have built alternative structures and alternative strategies. And Democrats, we love the media because we think the media is an important part of democracy. And it is. And we hate the fact – and, and we just, I think we generally want there to be referees who can call balls and strikes and tell us what's true and false. And we want to live in that world. But that world doesn't exist anymore. The media is still part of your strategy, but it is one piece of content. And I think the, the last part about this is, and you and I have been in 10,000 conversations with donors, politicians, Senate caucus meetings, whatever else, where people are like, what's the message? What is the magic phrase, the slogan, our version of small government, less taxes, or make America great again that's going to turn the election in our favor? And having a good message is incredibly important. I think it's generally a, more of a story than a slogan. But there's so few conversations, and this brings us back to your, your previous question about infrastructure, there are not enough conversations about how we get the message out, how we get in front of the people who need to see it, because our, under the current world, that is not happening. 
right? And if we do like and that, it's getting like there's a long term strategy to make us always ready for that. But we have some things we need to do right now to be able to get it in front of the voters we need in 2020. Yeah, no, I mean, you you capture in your book, we have both the content deficit and then even in an ideal world where we were able to um, bridge that deficit, we have a last mile problem, right? We're not feeding that content, particularly the low information voters. I'm always surprised when you, when you you look at research with swing voters, things that we just assume everybody knows, the tax cuts only went to the wealthy or the companies who got them didn't create jobs, or, or we have the highest deficit since World War II. Voters don't know these things, right? They're busy and we got to feed it. I'm curious, um, uh, you know, when you think about things like, I'll go back to, you know, we are going to make the District of Columbia the 51st state and we're going to get rid of the filibuster. Seems like one of the challenges we have, uh, and it connects the conversation we're just having about traditional media, is if Mitch McConnell does something like that, the media generally says, well, that's what Mitch McConnell does. Um, when Democrats do something like that, we tend to get a t- tremendous amount of shit for it, right? We didn't bring Republicans along and, you know, we did it too soon. And how do you evaluate that? And I, and I know the answer is we, we just can't really care about the peanut gallery and we got to do what we think is right to move the country forward. But is that, is that, is that dynamic still in place in your view? Oh, 100%. I, I write about this in the book, and I, I refer to it as the asshole advantage, which is the media <laughs> presumes cynicism from the Republicans. It's seen as a virtue for them, and they have higher expectations for Democrats. And maybe we should be grateful that we they do not see us as assholes, but when we do just a, you know, a naked power grab is celebrated as McConnell's genius, and it is treated as rank hypocrisy and cynicism of a Democrat to something that even looks like it might help them politically. And I think we have to blow through that. Right. But one of the things that will help us blow through it is having progressive voices who will make the case for why it matters. Right. And I think let's let's say we have a uh, president X. Right. Who is a Democrat who has just won. This is where we have to think that we now live in a permanent campaign season. Right. If we are the, the press has a filter that sometimes benefits Democrats, but often, as you point out, in situations like this could be negative, right? And it is, it's not a bias ideologically, it's a bias towards conflict or hypocrisy or whatever. And, and so what we have to do is, let's say, let's say we like, in month one, our new Democratic president is going to wants to get rid of the filibuster. So how do we how do we do that? One, the campaign never goes away, right? People like you and I who spent our last four campaigns, we don't get to go on long vacations or check out, do other things. The campaign stays on. It keeps raising money and it keeps running ads, right? So you run ads explaining in the run-up to it, explaining why you're going to do it. You run ads pressuring or encouraging certain members to eliminate the filibuster or add DC as a state. After it's over, for a long, like a long tail, you have to be out there both with your organic content, not depending on the press, but using either your network of supporters or your social feeds and ads to shape the conversation. Because if the only way people are going to learn about this is through the filter of the, of the mainstream media, they are not going to get the full picture, right? So you have to be out there making your case. Trump should have taught us some lessons on this, right? He has been his own hype man on the economy. And even though the first three years of his presidency are slower in terms of job growth than the last three years of Barack Obama's, the fact that he is out there every day touting his own economic accomplishments has been to his benefit. And so we're going to have to be out there telling our own story too. For sure. Yeah. Well, he's a marketer through and through. I mean, and he gets, he gets, um, both old school marketing. You need a good story, but I think he understands the, the modern forms of communication. Um, so I'm curious, Dan, when you look at, um, 
the folks engaged in our primary now uh, and some of your observations and I think, um, uh, you know, the guidance in the book about the way we need to approach communications. Do, do, is there anything happening in our field that strikes you as where we need to be and, and gives you hope? Or do you think a lot of our candidates are still playing too much off the old playbook? I, there are reasons to give me hope. And I do think it's important to grade how the campaigns have done on this on a curve, because when you are trying to persuade voters, Democratic primary voters in Iowa and New Hampshire, the mainstream media, some of the old tools are still very powerful, right? Cable matters in a Democratic primary. Um, a good or bad New York Times story can matter in a Democratic primary. Actually, particularly in a social media world where it's going to get, it's not just who's picking up the paper outside their doorstep or going to the website to see it. It's who's having it shared in their Facebook feed or their Twitter feed or wherever else. And so they're sort of responding to the incentives of a primary, which are different than a general when you're trying to reach um, less engaged voters who do not mainline politics all the time. I do think the two candidates who I think have done the most interesting, who at least have shown them and some of the right parts of the mentality here is I think Mayor Pete Buttigieg understands the uh, the necessity of con all content all the time. He has been omnipresent in the media. That sp sparked his rise. I think it really helped him from Iowa to New Hampshire to come in a strong second in New Hampshire. And even though he's he's primarily using traditional media outlets to do it, he sort of he understands this view that you're not doing ten interviews to tell ten tell the same people ten, the same thing ten times. You're doing ten interviews to give you ten chances to reach people in a disaggregated and distracted media environment. So I think he gets that a lot. And I do think Bernie Sanders and his campaign do understand the importance of building up alternative media ecosystems. Right. I was really struck by some of the interviews he's done, some of the outlets he's raised up as he is he sort of put hands on pr progressive media outlets and really built relationships with some of the, you know, some of the newer, particularly online uh, progressive outlets. And that it, like he and I think he has benefited greatly from that because he does not depend on good New York Times, CNN and Washington Post coverage to tell the story of his campaign. He has other people doing it from The Intercept to The Young Turks to Jewish Currents to a whole host of other ones. And that has been a proactive part of the strategy. So I think that Sanders has also shown a very um, sophisticated understanding of what this new media environment is and has benefited from an a very engaged group of online supporters, like putting aside the negative behavior of some of them. You have a lot of them who are lifting up his message, making content and sharing it themselves. You're seeing videos and memes coming from his people that are are be going viral organically, and that's such a force multiplier. And so I think those two can all the campaigns have done smart things here and there, but I think those two campaigns have shown the most to date sophisticated understanding of the new media environment. I mean, I think Trump certainly, or certainly his campaign believes this. Do you think it's fair to say that sort of memes and gifts are more important than major speeches, as we used to call them? Well, I think they can be. Uh, but I think we just have to think about these things more holistically, right? The speech is not an end of itself. It is a giant content opportunity that, that you're then going to share on different platforms, chop up in different ways, and make memes from and make, make gifts from and use a short video here on Snapchat or Instagram stories or whatever it is. Like, you just have everything as a content opportunity. And then you need a strategy to distribute that content in a, in a way that is authentic to the platform you're going to distribute it on. And the part that I think is so important, and you talked about this, you talk about this a lot in your 
very excellent forthcoming book, and you talk about it on this podcast, is engaging people to share content, to make and share content. And that is, an, I think, a really important thing that we don't think about enough, which is every person is walking around with a supercomputer in their pocket with hundreds of contacts through Facebook, Instagram, their own phone, and you have the capacity to reach and influence those people with either something that the campaign has shared, a media outlet has written, or that you create yourself. And that is this very powerful thing we should be encouraging people to do. Right. So, you know, if we don't beat Trump, um, the work you suggest in the book still has to happen. <laughs> so right. so let, let's, let's not go to the darkest place right now, but let's say we beat Trump. And I think one of the challenges for the kind of agenda and ideas you lay out is I think there are going to be a lot of people who are just like, hey, we beat Trump and, you know, the threat is over. I think there will be a divide between the donor, the, the large donor class and the grassroots activists, the large donor class saying, hey, we can't push things too much now. Country's not like. So how do you when you think about, OK, it's November the 4th, unless we're counting votes in Arizona till Thanksgiving and we've won. Um how do you convince people that that is just the beginning uh, and that it's not simply what health care plan our nominee introduces, rolling back the tax cuts? You know, they'll do executive orders, obviously, to roll back a lot of Trump's rollbacks of Obama's environmental things. All those things need to happen. But the bigger structural opportunities and challenges you speak to, how do we make sure people stay focused and that's their North Star? Because I worry that, there, you know, there could be a little bit of receding if we're able to beat Trump. Yeah, I, I 100% agree that there is a palpable hunger among a lot of people to turn politics off for a second. And it's going to be incumbent upon not just our new Democratic president, but everyone in Congress and folks like ourselves to try to encourage people to stay involved. And I think one important part of this is the campaign has to stay on, right? We have to have a mechanism to continue engaging the people who were brought into the process People were brought in the process, not just in to, for the purpose of electing President X or Y, but were brought into the process after Trump won, right? How do we have, like, it has to be a fundamental imperative for everyone from the top of the party to the bottom of the party to explain to people that citizen, that Trump was a warning sign and that citizenship is a full-time job and we have to stay engaged. And I think, I do think that there are some real, going to be some really big and important issues that will be if they are brought to the forefront, will have the potential to keep people involved. I do think one of the first things a Democratic president should do, it like, if you remember you and I, we went through this with Obama, it took a while to fully get around, get ourselves and everyone around to the process that there was no, there was never going to be a bipartisan idea or bipartisan cooperation on healthcare. And if we wanted to do it, we're going to have to do it ourselves. And I think we have to short circuit that process and fast forward it in the in the new presidency, right? And because there will be this sense when Trump leaves and all of a sudden you'll have a bunch of people like Ben Sass saying, I never liked him anyway, and thank goodness he's gone. But they'll still be acting the same way. And I think one way to do that is we we should test it right away. It's like, let's take a 90% issue, like universal background checks, put it on the floor of the Senate and see if the Republicans filibuster a 90% issue on a uh, as one of the first priorities of a newly elected Democratic president with a mandate. And if the answer is yes, as I suspect it will be, that is your answer of what we're going to have to do to get anything done. Because if you can't get a 90% issue done in the first 10 days of a Democratic president, you're not going to get any of the hard stuff done. So I think we have to show people that the structural problems for progressive progress are still there, even if we, ha even if we have some more levers of power than we do today.
No, that's really smart. I think that creates the permission structure to be aggressive. No, that's another place where I think, you know, I mean, this used to drive you crazy, I know, and it, it drove me crazy well. Like, you know, Obama is not having enough, uh, you know, drinks with Mitch McConnell and he can't get the Republican. And, you know, Trump's out there calling the Democratic Party criminals and traitors and, and no one, like, says that's, like, not the way to govern. It's Again, it's like, well, that's Trump. You know, he's allowed to act that way. McConnell's allowed to act that way. So I think that's the other way I think activists can be helpful, right, is when our president and our leaders in Congress go to the most extreme I say extreme in a good way, measures to kind of unstick things um, that we got their back, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like the, you need – we need to push people in the party to do the right thing. And when they do the right thing, we should thank them for it and let them know that we will stand there with them. And that that is you know, rewarding people who do the right thing, particularly ones in tough situations with volunteers and donate, grassroots donations. Like I was pleasantly surprised to see when uh, Senator Doug Jones came out for conviction in the Senate trial that – People, Democrats around the country rallied to his side because they knew that that was a very tough thing to do. He's the most endangered incumbent in our party by far, and he did the right thing, and we supported him. We're going to have to do that when people do the right things on these issues of democratic reform I'm talking about and on tough policy issues, whether it's health care or climate change or, or something else like that. Right. So, Dan, let's focus on the general election, okay? So as we sit here, you and I are having this conversation in mid-February. Um I'd like just to hear from your standpoint um, where you think we stand. And, you know, again, it it does depend in part um, on who we nominate. But are you – you still think we have a pathway to win here? I mean, of course we do. But do you think it's narrowed somewhat? Do you think it's – I'd just like Dan Pfeiffer to talk about the state of the world and on the night of November the 4th, um, what you think is likely to happen. Uh, as uh, no more predictions, I know. Yeah, no more. No, I will not make a prediction. So, so not a prediction, just like trend lines. What gives you optimism? What doesn't give you? Look, I think we we have to be clear eyed about the fact that incumbents usually win, and incumbents in good economies have almost always won. But having said that, this is this is a I think essentially a jump ball election. Trump has advantages, but so do we. He is a particularly unpopular president. He is particularly undisciplined campaigner. He has a propensity for committing crimes. He has an inability to stick to his message. And so we can beat him. It, it, but it, it is a – I think – I don't think our path is narrowed, but I think we we now know post-impeachment that this, is, this ended up where it was probably always going to end up, which is a very close race decided by 150,000 voters in three to four states. And that's what it's going to be. That's what it – you know, I think we had dreams when he was at 38% or in the middle of impeachment or during the Mueller report that that this would be a, an easier task than it is. But it is still a very winnable election. And we can do it if we do all the right things, if we unify and we, and peop, and we have the activism, not just on election day or in sort of the GOTV window, but starting now to organize and get the data and get the the volunteers that in the in the registrations we need to get there. So, like I am, I don't want to like I, I'm not a naturally optimistic person, as you know. But I but I do think this is a very winnable election. And I think post uh, John Favre and I were just talking about this uh, right before this conversation. But it is like because of this is the darkest part of the primary, where maybe the candidate you love is not doing as well as you want, or the candidate you love least is doing very well, and it just feels terrible. And Trump was just acquitted, and he just pardoned 30 people this week, and 
he's doing these terrible things. And so you, it just feels terrible, but the fundamentals are still, this is a, this is a winnable election. There is a path to get there. The math can be in our favor. We just have to do the work it takes and get a little lucky. Right. I mean, what do you think? Well, I agree with that. I mean, I think it's a, it's a jump ball election. Um, and, um, you know, we have to, I think Trump's going to turn out a lot of voters. So his, his sort of raw vote total goes up. So he hasn't shown any interest in expanding his base in a traditional way, right? But I think he is going to find a lot of people like his base and turn them out. So, you know, we need to persuade a bunch of people. We need to register a bunch of people. We need to turn them out. This false debate about base versus persuasion is crazy. The numbers suggest we need to do it all. So I agree with you. I think it's a very winnable race, um, but it's on a knife's edge. And so I think one of the important um, you know, mantras in your book is, you know, we kind of have to embrace reality, embrace fear even. <laughs> like, I think what's not going to work is if we think there's any shortcut to either getting rid of Trump, and if we're lucky enough to do that, um, really bringing about the kind of change you're talking about. And I think if we don't, like, stare stare that directly in the face, we're going to do a disservice to the country. So I, I think one of the great, um, I think, contributions your book makes, Dan, is that makes clear to people. It's not, you know, it's not dark, right? You're, you're providing solutions here, but we have to be real about where we are. And, you know, that's certainly in the book I've got coming out. Like, everybody can do another thing or two. I think we need a lot of people who've never been involved in politics to get involved. I really do believe that. And that's really the audience for my book. But even for people who've been heavily involved, there's always, you know, another thing or two you can do. And I think if that, if we don't do that, um, just some given his structural advantages, you know, he may win by a whisker again. Yeah, my wife's mantra for this election is that we have to get out of our comfort zone. So even if you went canvassing three times for Hillary Clinton, because that that fit in your schedule, you're going to have to make yourself uncomfortable and get out of your comfort zone and do something that feels inconvenient this time, because there's more work to do. And we have to recognize that, that it is like, as you point out, it's on the knife's edge. And we're just like a few extra days of canvassing or a few more phone calls or a few more knocks on the door away from actually winning this. and But we all have to do that, right? It has to happen at scale. Right. And I think the place where people are going to be most uncomfortable, you you talk about this in your book, uh, as I do as well, is, you know, back to content and social media. That's the war. That's the battlefield. And so folks need to be more comfortable, you know, on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Snapchat, sharing things, creating things. And that means people are going to be nasty to you. <laughs> and but 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 that's where the war is fought. And Trump and the Republicans have such an enormous structural advantage uh, in terms of both content creation and distribution. Um, and we're not going to narrow that over the next seven to eight months, um, you know, through the, some of the ideas you have in here um, that we need to work on over time. It's, it's really going to come down to a citizen army. Well, Dan Pfeiffer, thank you for joining us. Uh, the book, Untrumping America, Plan to Make America a Democracy Again, is just a terrific read. I think uh, anyone who, who, who reads this book uh, is going to both be entertained. It's a very funny uh, book uh, in, in traditional Pfeiffer style, but I think some really great ideas um, that actually made me optimistic that we could make the kind of progress we need to. So I'd encourage everybody to order the book. Um, Dan's going to be out on tour. Um, so go see Dan if you can. And, and Dan, thanks for this contribution to uh, really trying to make our country uh, all it can be. No, oh, well, Puff, thank you for having me. It's always uh, it's always fun to chat politics with you like the old days. All right, man. And go Sixers. <laughs> Absolutely. Go Sixers. As I figured it would be, a great conversation with my old pal Dan Pfeiffer, animating 
uh, what he's written in his new book on Trumping America, kind of the desperate uh, straits we find ourselves in to really undertake some of these structural reforms, but should give us optimism that there's ideas out there, there's pathways forward if our party and our leaders will have the courage to pursue them. So I really enjoyed the conversation and again, would encourage all of you uh, to purchase the book and and spend some time with it. Um, I think it'll help you think through what you can do in this election, uh, but beyond that, an understanding of the types of levers we need to pull uh, to make sure that we can really uh, move the country forward in a progressive direction and accomplish some of the great ideas and plans our candidates are talking about that without structural change may end up in the political and legislative graveyard. So um, really enjoyed time with, with Dan today.